0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are enough that you are glorious, that you are holy, that you are righteous, and that you are right now with us and for us. Lord, we want to confess that this week it has been so easy to forget that you are enough. We want to confess that so often our heart is divided and our desires misplaced. We thank you and ask that we would take hold of who Jesus is right now in His fullness. May we know His supremacy. May we know His sovereignty. May we know right now that He is our all-satisfying Savior. And so I ask that we would not just confess with our mouths, but believe in our heart, Jesus is enough. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move like a rushing wind right now. Capture our hearts. Renew our minds. Awaken us, we pray, that we'd be a people who'd live for you. We pray this for our good. We pray this for your glory. And we pray and commit this time in the precious name of Jesus. And all of God's people say with one ridiculously loud voice, Amen, amen. City on a hill, you may take a seat. Let's put our hands together. Thank God for the team serving us and all the volunteers who've helped gather today. City kids, love you guys. Wonderful that you could be here. Uh, so good to see your beautiful faces and really, really thankful that we can be together as God's people. If you're new or visiting, special welcome to you. Uh, my name's Guy. Uh, joy and privilege to serve as the pastor of this church, church committed to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Now, uh, this year I have been uh, listening to and making my way through uh, Christianity Today's podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. By show of hands, who has been tracking with me in this? Okay, a bunch of people. Uh, one of the most popular podcasts this year. Uh, and uh, it chronicles uh, the ministry of Mark Driscoll uh, and the rise and fall uh, of one of the fastest growing churches in the early 2000s. And, and, and I'm a keen listener uh, for a host of reasons. You know, I love great journalism uh, Mike Cosper, the journalist, does a fantastic job of getting under the, the hood, and as Britt uh, said to me, uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill uh, I- I- is true crime for Christians. So I love that. But it's also um, deeply personal for me. Uh, I had the opportunity some 13, 14 years ago uh, to meet Pastor Mark Driscoll. I was at a conference in New York And uh, one of the things I I was finishing Bible college at the time, and one of the things I really admired about uh, his preaching was an ability to take the bigness of God and integrate that theology with the realities of everyday life. Right, it was like the glory of God meets the street, and it was there, it was living, and it was active, and it was clear to see that you know God's hand was, was upon this church, Mars Hill Church. Um, uh, you know, like there was something, if you like, a revival going on where men and women like were coming from all different walks of life, many of which didn't grow up going to church. They had their story, and yet they were being found in Jesus. They were taking their sin and Jesus really, really seriously. And I was encouraged by that. You know, when I first met Mark, I was probably, you know, as I said, just finishing Bible college. Uh, this church that we planted was probably in our first year, and despite all of his like responsibility and popularity, I was quite humbled that he extended out a hand of friendship and encouragement to me. He invited uh, my wife and I to go visit uh, in Seattle, uh, and I spent, you know, I've been there heaps of times and spent a lot of time with Mark, uh, you know, notepad out, pen in hand, just trying to learn as much as I could what it actually meant to be a pastor. And over the years, you know, really would consider him a a good friend and something of a mentor, right? And so listening to this podcast and then um, hearing this culture of uh, idolatry, culture of mistreatment, culture of um, abuse, Listening and, and 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 seeing a complete like lack of repentance, um, man, it, it really grieved me. It's uncomfortable listening, right? When 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 you see you know something so so good, like I grieve the the um, the division. I grieve the, the loss. I grieve that behind the curtain of success was just a trail of bodies under the bus. And one of the things I've appreciated about the podcast is not just telling the story, but it's it's working really hard to try and get under the bonnet and understand why. You know, why is it that a great church like Mars Hill can rise up and then crash and burn? Why is it that Good leaders can make really bad decisions. And what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for us and our time and our moment? This morning, we're beginning a sermon series in the lead up to Christmas, looking at some of the great kings... (laughs) that were appointed by God chosen by Him to lead God's people with integrity faithfulness and honour one of the most famous kings Solomon King Solomon today's podcast (laughs) comes in three parts act one the rise of a king so in the opening pages of 1 Kings, we find ourselves about a thousand ish years from the birth of Christ. And we're in Jerusalem. And Solomon is appointed to the throne over all Israel. And do you know how old Solomon was when he became king? 12. <laughs> 12. By show of hands, how many of you felt ready to lead an empire? when you were 12. Right? Got No hands. <laughs> One. One hand. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> so here's Solomon, he's barely hit puberty, spending his days mastering Fortnite and uploading TikTok videos with his mates, when he gets a call that he's going to see his father. And he comes as a 12-year-old kid to the bedside the dying bedside of his father, who is David, King David. And who is he? David is impressive. David's the guy who slayed Goliath. He's the mighty warrior, the the man after God's own heart many of you know that David's life was overshadowed by a tragic end, in a moment of weakness, loneliness, insecurity. He commits adultery with a young, beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and in response to his own sin, there's no repentance at first, there's just this spiral downward of deceit and division, and tragically, death. And so when David, King David, calls his young son to his dying bedside, there is so much weight in his final words, right? Just just feel this moment, see it happen. He says, you know, he's putting his hands on on Solomon's shoulder, 12-year-old Solomon, and says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Young Solomon takes these words to heart. He wants to be a good son, he wants to be a good king. And actually, if you read in Kings, I think it's the third chapter, we're told that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes of David, his father. He loves the Lord. And it's this life-changing moment. Here's Solomon, he's in a I think it's a city just north of Jerusalem, when the Lord himself appears to Solomon in a dream maker of heaven and earth, appears to Solomon in a dream and says to him, ask for whatever you want and it will be yours. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine God meeting you, the living God, blank piece of paper and said, write down whatever you want and it's yours. What would you put down? Strike that, what would your 12-year-old self have put down? Yeah, right, big screen TV, um, arms like Thor, year subscription to KFC, hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> what, what would you put da- Solomon, listen to this. Oh Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Incredible. Solomon doesn't ask for a stretched pink hummer. Or a pool full of cash, in humility he asks for wisdom. He sees what's been entrusted to him. He sees the responsibility. He says, God, I'm going to need your help to make wise decisions. But Side point, that's a great prayer to pray. Whatever you're facing in your future, whatever you're facing, pray for God's wisdom. God honors that prayer. You know that? He blesses Solomon. He says, I'm going to give you the wisdom. And you know what else? I'm going to give you all the resources. I'm going to lengthen your day so you can live a long, abundant, fruitful, honorable life. It's amazing. And it's important to see that the wisdom that, that God gave Solomon not only establishes him to make some very wise rulings uh, and to pen some of the books of the Bible that we enjoy today, but it was leveraged by solomon to establish israel with tremendous wealth and prosperity historians believe that solomon was the richest man to have ever lived with a net worth they speculate ranging from 850 billion to 2.1 trillion dollars do you know what you can buy with 2.1 trillion dollars everything everything. Solomon was known to throw these huge parties, right? 10,000 people, no restrictions, bring them all in. Huge parties. I kind of see him as a Gatsby at this point. And And then he was devoted, I think, a decade of his life to building the most extravagant palace, right? And of course, the pinnacle of his creative work was, of course, the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Incredible. Cedar walls, stone, marble tops, right? Gold. Like, we talk about a golden age or a golden era. This was the golden era for Israel. Solomon is incredible, so impressive. Right? Incredibly impressive. More money than Bill Gates. Uh uh, more parties than Charlie Sheen, uh, more power than the Pope, more followers than Justin Bieber, more women than Ryan Gosling, LeBron James, and One Direction combined. And this leads to Act 2, the fall of an empire. So when you read First Kings... It's really worth uh, moving through the whole story all at once. In fact, here's some homework. Read the first 11 chapters in one sitting. Because it's interesting, because it, as you move through the, the, the narrative, it, it's almost as if the, the fall happens like suddenly, dramatically, out of nowhere. But if you actually look at the detail in the story, you begin to see that some of the foundations and the cracks were starting to show For example, chapter 10, you have this small but important detail about his army. He says, uh, the writer says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Right? So, the ancient world, chariots are, are, are like the most advanced weaponry known to man. Right? It's, a, it's the military tank of World War I, the nuclear bombs of you know, the, the modern age. And Solomon's mass of weaponry and army may, may seem insignificant. In fact, it may even seem wise. After all, he's got all of his gold and palaces and you know, temple and all of those things. It, it, it would be wise for any other king to have that amount of security. But of course, Solomon was not to be like every other king. He was to be different, right? So in the book of Deuteronomy, which comes before kings, you have God's people uh, about to enter into the, or looking forward to entering into the promised land. And God, you know, there's this prophetic word that's given to Israel. And this is what the Lord says. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Why couldn't they have just as many horses and chariots like the other nations? Because Israel was not to be like the other nations. As the psalmist himself said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And a similar observation can be made about his wealth. Did God bless Solomon with gold and silver? Absolutely. But there is a fine line, isn't there, between getting the house in order and being a slave to materialism and worldly, earthly pleasure. And then what do you say about Solomon's romantic life? What are we we to make of that? It's plain, isn't it, from Deuteronomy that the king was not to marry multiple wives, and if he did choose to marry, he had to marry an Israelite. How did he go with that? Not great. (laughs) Check this out. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite... Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning with which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, you, shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to those in love, to these in love. He had, note this, 700 wives, who were princesses, and 300 concubines, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I know what you're thinking, that's a lot of anniversaries to remember. (laughs) But just as the Lord had warned, so the heart of Solomon was turned. Verse 3, His wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Instead of worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Solomon became a slave to his own desires. He became a slave to the spirit of his age. He became a slave to counterfeit and false gods. How does he fare as a king? In the eyes of the world, he's amazing. We would revere a man like this today who accomplished this, who wrote that many books and that many songs and had those parties and built that empire. We would revere a man like this we'd have a statue for a man like this. But when weighed up with the revelation of God's word in Deuteronomy, when seen through the eyes of God himself, the wise man is a complete and empty fool. Um, After his death, his crown... Uh, was handed to his son, and yet many of the tribes rejected that son, and the empire, the kingdom, was split in two. It was divided, and that division lasted for the next 200 years, at which point the Babylonians surrounded and brought everything to dust. The palaces, the homes, the silver, the gold, the temple came down. Now, you will know that those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So, sitting on a hill, what are we to learn from this? Act 3, lessons from a wise fool. Uh, Just a few observations. Number one, it's not where you start, but where you finish that really counts. It's not where you start, but where you finish that counts. Solomon starts strong. Solomon comes out of the blocks with energy and passion and zeal for the Lord. But as he climbs the hill it's clear that he did not complete the race that God had planned for him to run. He became spiritually sluggish. He forgot what he was called to do. He forgot who he was called to be. He forgot his first love. This is a man, like many fallen leaders today, who became so consumed by the kingdom of this age that he lost sight of the kingdom of God. And what I find striking here is that his fall is is incredibly fast, but the steps towards that cliff edge are gradual, slow, and subtle. It's almost impossible to see it if you're not looking closely. And I actually think the same is true for you and me, right? If you've been a Christian for some time, you'll know that there are these big sins that we're all aware of that you've all got to avoid. Don't murder, right? If you know that one, that's a free one, right? <laughs> don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. These are the big Sins And and I think for most of us, you you can navigate your way around them. They're like bright, shining, neon light sins. Don't go there. But actually, what's really more pressing and pertinent for us all are the small and subtle drifts, just the tweaks, the minor shifts. You know, it's like a, a compass leading a ship. It only needs to be a little bit off, And you won't notice it in the beginning. You won't feel that drift. But what matters is not where you start, it's where you end. The drift away from prayer. The drift away from regular Bible reading. The drift away from the practice of confessing your sins. These slow and subtle changes, the compass. One of the most helpful and practical principles that I've found in my own life is to reverse engineer it. That is to say, um, you need to live with the end in mind. You need to have a vision for how you want the story to end, right? Do do, you know that? Do you know what the finish line is supposed to look like for you and what you want it to look like. For me, it's really clear. The vision is me in the presence of Jesus with Him. And it's, it's going to be a conversation, no doubt, about life, right? We're going to like jump into eternity and I can't wait for that, but I'm sure there'll be a moment, a pause moment to kind of talk about the life that was. And I think in that moment, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. We're going to talk about my faith and my journey with Jesus. And then I think he'll talk to me about my, uh, my marriage and my journey with Vanessa. And then I think we'll talk about being a dad and, and what I, you know, how I led and all of those things as a, as a father. And then after that, I think we'll probably talk about being a pastor and what it meant to, to lead a, a, a church. And here's the, here's the bottom line. I want that conversation to go well. I want that conversation to go well. You know, when I'm with Jesus, I want to be able to look back and see that my children, I've got four kids, um, knew that they had a dad who loved them, a dad who cheered them on, a dad who encouraged them, right? Not a perfect dad, because they didn't need to be perfect children, but a household where the streams of love and grace were just there for them. I want to look back on my marriage and, and, and for my wife to be able to say, you know, that, that I loved her and cherished her and sought to protect her and to serve her and to cheer her on. I want to be able to look back on ministry and, and sitting on a hill and, you know, um, thank God for His incredible kindness and you know, the many things that He accomplished and the miracles and the people who went from death to life and the churches that were planted, I want to celebrate with Jesus about that. And more important than all of those things, as good as that is, I want my relationship with Jesus at that point to be its absolute most authentic, deepest, personal moment. That my love for Jesus will be so Uh, real in that final end piece that moving from this life into the next will be like walking out of one room and going into the other. That's how I want the story to end, and I therefore seek to make every decision in this moment in light of the end. Choices about career, relationships, how I'll respond, what I won't do, what I will do, I seek to live in light of the end. Do I stumble and fall? Yes, yes. Sometimes I forget who I am. Sometimes I forget the vision of the end. But by the grace of God, I can get back up, sit in his mercy, and walk again in this faith that God has given. The Bible says to you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a work there, a present, continuous, active work Christianity isn't just a decision you made at some youth camp when you're like it's it's a daily discipleship with Jesus. It's not just a decision that your parents made on your behalf, it's an active choice where you get up every day, pick up your cross, Jesus says, and follow him. You're repenting of sin, you're reading your Bible, you're coming along to church, you're all of those things, they seem very insignificant. And they can seem small. And sometimes we can even question our progress, right? It's a bit like going to the gym. By show of hands, who's gone back to the gym after like two years in lockdown? Oh, a lot of you. Fit Church. Oh, man, going back for the first time in a long time is brutal, right? And isn't it true when you go to the gym, you see nothing, no results. And you go a second time. And what happens? You see nothing. At this point, a lot of people just give up, go home, eat a deep-fried Mars bar, sit on the couch and watch Squid Games. Much easier. But if you trust the process, if you continue to work somewhere along the line, well, whatever, the strength, the cardio, whatever it is, it's going to begin to move. You know what? What is true physically is absolutely true spiritually. This is what Eugene Peterson said is long obedience in the same way direction. What you are doing now, when it comes to your quiet times and your Bible reading, will tell you a lot about where you will be five, ten years from now. Jesus is the pioneer, the perfecter of your faith. Come to Him, look to Him. Second, and this one's really, really obvious, but it has to be said in a city and a church like this, really obvious. Number two, Who knew this? Money, sex, and power are dangerous. (laughs) Have you heard that before? Money, sex, and power are dangerous. Why dangerous, guy? Well, in part, they're dangerous because in and of themselves, they will not satisfy the deep longings of your heart. Favorite quote of mine, one of my favorites, not favorite, ooh, that's too big. (laughs) Russell Brand, interview in a club in London, says this, I thought it would... I can't do his accent. I thought it would be good to be rich and famous. It'd be good to have stuff. It'd be good to have money and be invited to the party. Well, I've been invited. I've been in. And we're having this chat in a swish private members club in East London. It's super cool. There's bare brick walls and everyone is double good looking. <laughs> but I've, I've, I've been inside now. I've seen the other side of the looking glass and it ain't flipping worth it. It ain't flipping worth it. It doesn't feed your soul I still feel empty inside. But the real reason money, sex and power are dangerous, not just because they kind of has this illusion, and doesn't satisfy, it's because actually they can draw you away from what truly matters. That's why they're dangerous. Because they can blind you from what's really, really important. And some of you here today are naive to this. Um, I suspect some of you look at people in the Bible, like Solomon, and you think, oh, that would never happen to me. If I was entrusted with all of that, all that opportunity all those resources all that privilege if i got all of that oh i would use it for good i'd be incredibly generous so so generous i wouldn't have all those lavish parties pools full of gin and and mark my words i would oh i would never have that many wives and concubines are you sure Um, Louis C.K. is a uh, very brash comedian, and uh, he was talking about all the hate mail that Tiger Woods and Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, was getting on account of their many multiple affairs, and uh, look, we'd all agree that what they did is wrong, that's not up for negotiation, Um, what Tiger Woods did, what Solomon did when it came to women, is is completely wrong, we know that. But one of the things that Louis points out in a very comical way is that many men men aren't having the affairs of Tiger Woods but that's not because they're good men. But because they don't have what Louis C.K. said was a busload of Swedish bikini models waiting for them at the final hole. In other words, the difference between our sin and the sin of someone like Solomon is rarely to do with our goodness and almost always to do with our opportunity. Jesus himself said, no one is good but God alone. And I stress that because some of you are going to find yourself in that place. Some of you will have So much wealth and success and popularity. You'll be in a space that you never thought was coming. You'll have opportunity. And there will be lots of opportunity to sin. And not only will you have the opportunity to sin, oh, your own flesh, the world, the devil is going to be milking that for all it's worth. It's going to be pulling you in. So what are you going to do about that? If your armour is not already in place, you're done. So work now. Pray now. Read the Word now. Work out who you truly are in Christ now. Have a vision for your life now surround yourself with godly men and women in your life now, right? A a soldier on the battlefield who's just rolling around by themselves is dead. You need godly, courageous men and women in your life who will encourage you, pray for you, cheer you on, and pull you up when you're being a jerk. You need that, I need that, We all need those people. If you are running Christianity by yourself, it's a fool's game. When we talk about community at this church, it's just not because we just like having morning tea together. It's because we need one another. You have to encourage people in your life, and they need to encourage you. If that's not happening, today's the day to make a decision and pray, God, equip me. Number three, wisdom without worship is foolish wisdom without worship is foolish one of the conundrums when you read solomon is trying to work out how does someone so wise become and behave so with so much stupidity does he not realize that he's disobeying god does he not see that he's making a train wreck of his life it's fascinating because when I think about my own life, I have to confess that there's been moments where I've idolized knowledge, where I've made a god out of being smart. I, um, I was the first person in my family to finish year 12, right? In year 10, I tried to exit out of school. Um, I spent a day on a building site and soon discovered that bricks are a lot heavier than books. I went back to school, begrudgingly, uh, finished year 12 and then uh, went to, uh, uh, what do you call those things? University. Uh, <laughs> I went to RMIT, very good university, uh, did a BA there, loved that, enjoyed my 12 contact hours. And, um, <laughs> and then I actually enrolled in uh, a theology degree. Uh, it's called a Masters of Divinity. A Masters of Divinity. Is that impressive? Can you imagine having that conversation with the Lord? Hi, God. I'm the master of God. <laughs> Clearly, I'm quite proud of that certificate. It's on my yeah. I, I, to, I'll be honest with you. I, I really like did not want to go to Bible college because I was felt so out of my depth around that many smart people. The books everywhere. The people knew everything. I just was like, don't get found out. Don't get found out. And you're in those classes and it's like the same three people ask the same, like the questions. They're not really questions. They just make you feel like an absolute moron. And I think there's a temptation, particularly in reformed evangelical circles, to really make an idol out of our knowledge. It's like it's like if you can say the truth in the right way, oh, then you're the right? As opposed to realizing there's a big difference between someone who who knows and can articulate the truth versus the person who lives and cherishes the truth. Massive difference. Right? That's the illusion, the conundrum, the the challenge with Solomon. It's got all of this wisdom. But when that becomes untethered from your walk with God, you're living the life of a fool. Same with every gift. God's gifted you, there's no doubt. But you'll walk in a fool's game if that becomes untethered, untethered from your walk with God. I love this from Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of Heaven. Whoever humbles himself like the child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus see in kids? A superior intellect? A great resume? No. Faith. Child's big picture of God, trust in him, dependence upon him, love for him. Solomon lost that. Don't make the same mistake. Final point, band comes up, we'll land this plane, hopefully, quickly. Number four, we need one greater than Solomon. So, the tragedy of Solomon, and of any great leader that's crashed, is the eradication of hope. People put their hope in Solomon. He was going to be their provider, he was going to help them discern right from wrong, he was going to help lead them in the way of life. And when his life fell short of the hope that he proclaimed, the whole tower comes down. So what do you do? Where are you going to look in a world like that? Well, again, let's hear the words of Jesus. There's this great moment. He's talking with the Pharisees. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came with the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. <laughs> Can you imagine Jesus standing with all of these Pharisees in their great robes and their CVs and their whatever else, and he's got like, like disheveled clothes? They must have just thought he was out of his mind. How could he even compare himself to Solomon? Solomon. Solomon, like, had a palace. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Solomon had thousands upon thousands of people serving him. Jesus just had a few fishermen, ex-sex workers. (laughs) Jesus is the true and better Solomon. Why? Well, Solomon had wisdom, sure, but Jesus is the full wisdom of God revealed. The Word made flesh. Solomon, man, he stuffed his opportunity. He gave in to sin. Jesus, who was offered every opportunity, stood firm in the face of trial and temptation. Solomon, in his last years, was enslaved to pagan, counterfeit gods and trying to serve himself. Where do we see Jesus? Well, you see him on the cross. You see him pouring himself out in dependence upon God and in love for his bride, the church. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is a king you can trust. Jesus is a king you can follow. Jesus is one you can orientate your whole life and every decision around him. Jesus is the one you can entrust your hope to. Jesus is one you can find your love in because you were made for him. And our world needs Jesus and our world needs men and women who will lead like Jesus. Right? When it comes to authority, as one writer put it, the response to bad authority is not no authority, it's good authority. We need gospel-centered women and men who love Jesus and lead like Jesus. So let's pray now that God would empower us by His Spirit that we might lead after Him. Let's stand and let's pray. To you alone, Lord, we live and give you glory. Help us to be captivated by you and your glory and the life and end you've called for us. We thank you that uh, you forgive us. And so we just confess, Lord, no doubt there's so much in our life that's been entangled with this age. And we pray, Lord, that right now, as we confess that in our hearts and in our minds, we'd also celebrate your forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, that right now, your spirit would fill us. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to be the church that truly does shine your light and love. We long to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.